0: This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning. I'm the pastor here at the Axis. My name's Jeremy. Uh, once again, welcome. I'm uh, really glad that you're here today. If you would, uh, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. There should be a Bible close by, uh, with the exception of those on the front row, sorry. There should be Bibles in front of you, uh, under the the seats there uh, where you are. Luke chapter 1. Well, we're gathered today together, forming the Axis Church, and we're eight years old as a church this month. Our mission as a church is, we seek to to know, love, and obey God. Jesus and teach others to do the same. And at the core of our identity as a church is we're a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. So simply put, we love Jesus, we preach the Bible, and we seek to live lives on mission for God's glory, our joy, and the salvation of others. Today is our very first week in our time, in our study, our journey through the book of Luke that we've entitled, The Real Jesus. And so we're looking at Luke chapter 1 in its entirety, all right? If you look, it's a couple pages of your Bible, um, 80 verses, and uh, we're going to do some serious work here. Um, Titans game's going on. You can't go anywhere, really. The traffic's bad, so let's just hang out to about three, all right? All right. Church history and tradition both holds that Luke is the author of this gospel. And many statements through this particular gospel, through this book of the gospel of St. Luke, as well as in other portions of the New Testament, we, we get significant internal evidence that Luke is, in fact, the one who wrote this gospel. So then who is Luke? Well, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician, um, he, he was a historian as well, and so to have a, a document that's been produced and edited and sent around by a historian, uh, there's good comfort in that, because this is what he did. He liked to give evidence for what happened. Uh, he was a highly educated man, and he was respected not just in Christian circles of the early church, he was a respected historian, period. He wrote with a, a sophisticated literary skill. Uh, his knowledge of the Greek is extensive. His vocabulary is very rich and beautiful. Luke himself was a second-generation Christian, a second-generation Christian, a second-generation Gentile Christian. He wasn't Hebrew. He wasn't a Jew. Okay? Um, he wasn't necessarily longing for the Messiah like that of the Jews. He was an outsider. He's a Christian. He's been made a Christian. He's been invited in, which is grace. So he's a second generation Gentile Christian. Okay. He wrote this letter back in the early 60s, uh, not 1960s, obviously. The early 60s, the true 60s, somewhere between years 62 and 64, He was discipled by a man named Paul, the apostle, who wrote at least 13 letters of the New Testament. He accompanied the apostle Paul on many of his journeys uh, as he was a a missionary throughout uh, Asia Minor. To give you some sort of uh, historical background of where this falls in, modern, in, in uh, ancient history is you may be familiar with that of Emperor Nero, a very cruel man who persecuted the church. Well, that came on at the end of year 64, beginning of year 65 and following, where there was significant, heavy persecution of the Christian church. Well, this happened just a couple years. This letter was written just a couple years prior to this, and, and Luke himself leaned heavily on the book of Mark. It was one of the other writings that he consulted in producing his document, which was written in the late 50s. Okay. This was written for us to know and hear firsthand from Luke through his evidence, through his good historical work, for you to know, and all throughout church history, for us to know that we've been invited in to grace That even outsiders like Gentiles, like Luke, have been invited in to experience forgiveness of sins through saving faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Luke wrote with the hopes that his readers, you included, would understand with certainty, that you would know with certainty, he writes, with certainty, the things that have been taught and have been heard about Jesus So friends, this is why we're here today. This is why we're working through this book today as we discover the real Jesus. Much like Luke, we desire to know, believe, and hope in the real Jesus with certainty and do all we can to preach against false understandings of Jesus and phony Jesuses that can't save, but they can confuse and they can produce guilt and they can condemn. So our hope is that, that you'll learn along with us because we want you to know with certainty who the real Jesus was, is, and will be. So I invite you uh, not just to tolerate Sundays for a while. I invite you not just to come and kind of you know, have your church card stamped on Sundays. I don't invite you to come to be entertained by a preacher. That won't happen. But I do invite you to come dig with us and let's discover, let's discover the real Jesus. Let's challenge our assumptions and let's see who it is that this Jesus is all about and who he is. So it's faith in the real Jesus that saves us. It's not faith in a different Jesus. It's faith in the real Jesus that saves us and grants us hope. Therefore, it's good to know who it is that we see Jesus as. Amen? It's good for us to know so that we can have true hope in the life right now, in the grind right now, because it's only the real Jesus that gives hope to the daily grind. That gives meaning to to life, the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the struggle of this life. So Luke begins in Luke chapter 1 by addressing the world at large. And he sets Christianity on the stage of world history. Again, historian, he's doing work. Jesus doesn't actually show up as as a man in in Luke until like chapter 4. Okay? He provides a lot of historical background for, for the whole big picture of where Jesus comes from and a lot of unpacking of Old Testament prophecy. Okay? So let's dig together, starting in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is going to be a fun journey, y'all. We've got several weeks of this. Let's go. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning... Where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. I mean, he's a good historian. He's followed all things closely for a while to write an orderly account to, for you, most excellent Theophilus meaning friend of God, lover of God, apparently a Christian. Or uh, this could be a phrase that represented a group of Christians because we don't know anything else about this guy. The only thing we know is Luke wrote Luke and Acts, which is like almost Luke part two or Luke could be Acts you know, part one um, and then Acts being Acts part two. Uh, he, it's a historical narrative of Jesus and the church, Luke, Acts. So we don't know if he wrote it for Theophilus, a man or a group of people, but regardless, it was produced for people who were believers so that they could have certainty, verse four, concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were old. They were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, okay, so there were 24 like sub-tribes in the tribe of Aaron who were over all the temple, who were were those responsible for incense and sacrifices. And so his particular sub-tribe, uh, participated in this act in the temple uh, two weeks, maybe two weeks in a day every year. So it was during this two week window um, where he was on duty uh, that this ended up happening. So he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at this very important hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was just like you. He was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, trouble and fear, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, which, by the way, means God is gracious. Now, during these days, it was the duty of the father to name their children. So for God to take the initiative here and take this task as his own is a sign that John was going to be a special person to God. He was going to be used, that God was taking responsibility for the life and actions of John. Continuing in verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Which already you see God's providential hand working and taking responsibility for John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Christ, he will go before him as a promoter, as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah, much like Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how's all this gonna happen? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and I was sent or no, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this might sound familiar to you, uh, like Abraham and Sarah doubting what God was saying about them having a child, Isaac, at their old age, right? Very familiar here, uh, story. And the angel answered him, all right, you want a sign, okay, how, how am I going to know this? I'm Gabriel. Here's my job. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent here to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, that's not the sign he was expecting to get, right? But he certainly got a sign. <laughs> when, when you go from talking to, like you know something miraculous just took place, right? So he's thinking, well, the power that just shut me up could be powerful enough to provide something in the womb of my wife. So this was, in fact, a sign. Well, the people, were waiting for Ze- the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and he realized they had realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Like, he was trying to explain what happened. Imagine trying to use hands to explain an angel showed up to you. Like, just... Play that out in your mind. Like, what would that look like, right? (laughs) Um, They'd be guessing a tree fell more than they were expecting you to, an angel appeared, right? And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. See, she felt a burden. She couldn't have a kid. She was barren. And in this day, it was believed by the majority of people, even verbally spoken out loud, that because you couldn't have children, there must be sin in your life. The problem is with you, right? And so she felt this burden. She felt this condemnation from public opinion. And she's rejoicing in the fact that the Lord has taken away this reproach from the people's chirping and insults. In verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, angel Gabriel again, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now Luke begins to focus more on Mary. If you want to read more about Joseph, Matthew a writer of the Gospel of Matthew, he focuses more on the lineage of Joseph. But we're gonna learn a little bit about Mary over the next few weeks. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. <laughs> yeah, he was. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Is this a death angel? Is this, like, is this good news? Is this bad news? Am I in trouble? Like, what's gonna happen here? And he said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for, for you have found favor with God. And, and look, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. 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 And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Well, great. The, the, the Jews are going to finally have their place as a nation. But then He continues. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Yeah, forever. Whoa. Forever. That concept is that of the Christ. Not just a a ruler, but the Messiah. Everything was cool up until this point. Now Mary's like, wow, this this is bigger than this life. And he expounds even more. And of his kingdom, there simply... Will be no end. By the way, the name Jesus is the equivalent to Yeshua or Joshua in Hebrew, meaning Savior. He would be a king in the line of David and be called the Son of God. Like Solomon, he would rule over David's realm, but forever, not just during his lifetime, but forever. And these expressions indicated to Mary that her child was in fact the one that they had been waiting for all these years, that he was in fact the Messiah. And then a very honest moment here in Scripture we have in verse 34 a fantastic question when you really think about it. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Like, it didn't It's like the Messiah, the, the Christ, the, the King of all kings forever and ever. Like, that's cool, but wait, how's this gonna happen? I've never been intimate with a man. Like, what's, it's a great question, right? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come to you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, meaning not born through the lineage of Adam, who was the representative of our sin, but born through the power of God, untouched by sin as we are through being born in the lineage of Adam, our first parent, the son of God, holy, the son of, not Joseph, the son of God. See, Mary's child would be holy, meaning separated to God. It's it's not merely morally upright. He could have written this with his Greek understanding, of the the Greek language. He could have written out what it meant to be morally upright. He doesn't. He uses a a divine term, holy, meaning sharing in the very nature of God. Your son is God. Now, I know many of us find this difficult to believe. We have been, whether we like it or not, heavily influenced by our European enlightenment faith that is prejudiced to all things, supernatural and miraculous, but the Bible states this as fact. It says this is what happened. As Christians, we are to humbly receive this as true by faith. My prayer is that God would allow us to rest in his word and receive all of it, not just the easy part, all of it, even the parts that require faith, receive all of it as both good and true. This is how we handle scripture. Well, the angel continues in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who used to be called barren. Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary offers this beautiful song. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What a testimony! Christian, if if you're a believer in this room today, this is your story. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary then remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. The inspiration for her song here uh, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah has just been given a child from God, and she begins to rejoice and make much of God. That's 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, if you want to look at that later. What Mary does here, though, is she provides um, a beautiful metaphorical description of what her son, Jesus, will accomplish in his life and through his death. It's beautiful. Verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And then they said to her, Well, none of your relatives is called by this name. And then they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name. Name is John. I'm tired of not being able to talk. Name the kid John, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. And he didn't, look, look at what was interesting for those who were around him. Look at what stuck out. His first words. And he blessed God. God beautiful. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the God of Israel, Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Think of this language. Think of this imagery, okay? He has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a a horn of salvation, forgiveness coming through this, uh, uh, this representative redeemer. This horn of salvation has been raised up for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, That we should be shown mercy that's been promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That we might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking to to his son, John, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. Jesus, son of the Most High. John, prophet, prophet. Or servant of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Again, the promoter, the forerunner there, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. Forgiveness of sins through the mercy of God, not through sacrifice. This is breaking news. The forgiveness of their sins because of tender mercy, not just mercy. <laughs> Tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Notice that, who sit in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was out in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Friends, the the careful structuring and interweaving of the stories here indicate that John the Baptist was a significant person whose birth was part of the plan of God. But also it tells us here that Jesus, what's implied is that Jesus is even a greater person than his predecessor. I mean, all this work is going in to get his promoter on the stage. How much more important then is the one who follows him? You see, this story contains many Old Testament echoes which reveal that God's new activity in in, in John and in giving the Messiah is a fulfillment of prophecy and in accordance with his, his acts long, long ago back in the Old Testament era. You see, Luke lets us know that Jesus, God in the flesh, what he does here as a historian is he tells us that Jesus entered into human history in a particular time and place. That there was a real Jesus, a real man who entered into real time and space, who walked on real earth, who interacted with real people. He entered during a specific cultural and political and religious period. And he entered into our human history to be our representative redeemer. He came to offer us, as Zechariah points out, forgiveness of our sins. And as Zechariah points out, to restore us back into friendship with God. You see, for thousands of years, God promised to send a savior. He promised to redeem the world, to send a savior, a redemptive redeemer who would come and rule and reign as king of all kings forever, not just for his lifetime. And Luke tells us that these are the things that took place just prior to Jesus coming into our brokenness, into our fallen world. Jesus entered to bring salvation. This is is what Zechariah is getting at here. I'm going to use some of his words. Jesus, the Messiah, came to bring salvation. He came to grant forgiveness. Out of love and mercy, Jesus came to extend to us not judgment, but mercy and grace. And He came, as Zechariah says, to bring light. As the light of the world himself, he came to bring light to shine into our darkness. Our darkness, meaning our arrogance. Our darkness, meaning our ignorance. Our darkness, meaning our sin. He came to bring light to us. And he came to experience death. And this is Zechariah's point, so that you would only have to experience death's shadow. And Jesus came to usher in the Holy Spirit into our lives, who is now our guide, as Zechariah refers to him, leading us into holiness, righteousness, obedience, wisdom, and peace. You see, the real Jesus came to the sinner and the outsider. The real Jesus crossed borders to reach the marginalized and the religious outcast. The real Jesus came and kicked it with friends who were tax collectors, a whole entire class of despised people. He loved to sit back and eat and talk and even befriend the religious elite, the Pharisees. He crossed all sorts of of, uh, uh, boundaries and lines to invite people to listen to the good news of the kingdom that he was there to bring about. This is the real Jesus And I understand that many of us, if you're like me, perhaps all of us, would find it difficult to be comfortable being around Jesus. And it's hard to admit, but I believe we'd find it difficult to be around Jesus simply because he couldn't be put into a box. He couldn't be put into a box. It seemed that he was always surprising people with his words and with his actions and reactions. Just when you thought that Jesus was going to respond a certain way, he goes and does something that you would never imagine, You see, he wasn't predictable. Jesus was not easy to figure out. There's never been a leader or teacher like him. There hasn't been one since. So I ask you to do your best, to look with me with fresh eyes into the Bible over these next several weeks, and let's discover the real Jesus together, the Jesus of the Bible. Let's do this together. You see, unfortunately, our world is, Saturated. Our culture is saturated with many different versions of Jesus. You call them Jesus juniors. Uh, you could call them phony Jesuses, false Jesuses, fake Jesuses, posers, counterfeits, whatever. But here's a few of them. There's the do the list, Jesus. You must fulfill the moralistic to-do list every day of your life. Or you make Jesus really mad. You don't have to necessarily do the the list perfectly, though. There's some gray here. You just have to be better than Aaron, better than Jason, right? Better than Jeremy. Just a little bit better than the next guy. That's all you have to do. Just just be a little bit better than her. This is the to-do list, Jesus. But when you don't do right, when you don't do right, you meet the finger-pointing Jesus, The finger-pointing Jesus is the one who's just always just looking at you with disdain. And he caught you. He finally caught you. He knew that you were a fraud all along, and he caught you. He's always looking to call you out. He's constantly disappointed in you. The finger-pointing Jesus doesn't even consider your effort effort. He calls it effort. Like, sure, that's a good try. Yeah, way to really care about things. He's always assuming the worst when it comes to you. But then there's the Santa Claus Jesus. You get to get close to this Jesus and tell him how good you are. You prove to him just how good you are, and you tell him all you want, and all your dreams come true. This is this is the, the beautiful um, this is the beautiful Jesus that just grants us all our hearts' desires so long as we are good. But then there's the angry Coach Jesus. You get your act together now. You start proving that you care now, or I'll take you out and put somebody back in your place. I don't like that one. Then there's the Jamaican Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry about a thing. cause what? Every little thing's going to be all right. (laughs) He doesn't really care about how you live life, so long as you're enjoying the ride. And if it feels good, do it. Who am I to interrupt your fun? But then there's the karma Jesus. This Jesus too is soft on sin. Don't worry about sin. Don't worry about a proper understanding of God's character. Just love others. Treat others with respect. Be a good person. And God's going to take care of you in the end. And you know what? Don't tell anybody. But you've been good enough not to slip up here that you deserve to, to sin a little bit this weekend. I mean, look at all the good you've done this week. Go ahead. Just don't hurt anybody. Now go sin. Then there's the sincerity Jesus. This one is very popular for us today. The sincerity Jesus. This Jesus doesn't care what the Bible says. Only in your sincerity. If you're genuine, you can be wrong. If you're genuine and sincere, you can be disobedient and even rebellious. Your feelings and intentions And sincerity, that's the authority in your life. Don't let others tell you what's right and wrong. Your sincerity is authority, not what God says. Now there's the Vegas Jesus. What goes on behind closed doors doesn't concern him at all. You'll be fine so long as you give some money to charities, as long as you give some money to a church, as long as you at least know where your Bible is. Okay, Pray before most meals. And show up to a church gathering at least once a month, and you'll be okay. You'll be totally fine. What goes on behind his back stays behind his back. And then there's the Nashville Jesus. You live your life on a stage, and so long as you do the right thing, you're applauded, you're appreciated, you're loved. But you mess up one time, you're dismissed. And his attention shifts to the next potential star. And then, of course, perhaps the most famous Jesus of the Bible Belt is the no Jesus. No fun, no music, no good music anyway, no drinks, no good drinks, (laughs) uh, no laughing, (laughs) no smoking, no parties, no dancing, no throttle, no thrill, no tattoos. And if you're wondering about it, the answer's no. Don't even ask. You see, there's many false and phony Jesuses. This is just a few. Many of you came in here, whether we realize it or not, carrying a misunderstanding of who the Jesus of the Bible really is. We've created this in our imagination through poor teaching, through fear, through disappointment, through twisting scripture because we want to accommodate sin in our life, so we kind of twist this around a little bit, distort it a little bit so we don't have to repent or change. Our hope is that we'll help others see and know the real Jesus. You see, the real Jesus is the one who came to endure all the finger pointing for you because the fact is you deserve finger pointing. You deserve the judgment of God. But Jesus steps in your place and receives the finger pointing for you so that there's only the loving embrace of God the Father, your creator. Amen? Amen. The real Jesus is the one who perfectly and always lived for you as you so that there is now grace in the pursuit of seeking to become more and more like him. There's not condemnation and there's not shame. Now, here's the real Jesus. If you want to know the real Jesus, consider these words. Jesus says to a very heavy-hearted group of people, come to me. Like, that alone is grace. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy-laden, who are weary, who are struggling, who are in the grind. And guess what? I'm not, I'm not going to make it harder on you. I'm going to give you rest. Here, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I will teach you. Just learn from me. And I am gentle. I'm lowly. Do you have a concept for Jesus being gentle and humble? The Jesus of the Bible is gentle, humble. And even it tells us that it's the kindness of Jesus that actually leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath and judgment and anger. It's his kindness. Do you have, do you have the understanding of Jesus being kind and gentle and humble? That's who he is. He's kind, he's gentle and humble, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So he offered us his yoke, right? It's not heavy. He tells us, My yoke is easy. He could have used a different word, but he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The real Jesus says in Mark 2, those who are well, who think they are well, was his point, have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. (laughs) This is good news. You're a sinner. Jesus came for you. That's good news. The good news is that the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is a friend of sinners, not a condemner of sinners, Not a finger pointer of sinners, not trying to add weight and burden to sinners, not trying to provide a ladder to climb or a list to fill out. He's a friend of sinners. The real Jesus meets us in the grind, in the struggle, in the heaviness, in the mess of this life, and he invites us to receive joy and peace that is only found in a reconciled relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not reconciled by your goodness, not reconciled by you filling out a list and doing enough good things, but only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not soft on sin. Jesus takes sin very seriously. The Bible teaches, you could take 2 Corinthians 5, 21 if you want. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was made our sin. He takes sin very seriously. He took on the punishment that you deserve for your sin. Therefore, Jesus knows sin and its consequences more than any of us in this room right now. He understands sin and its consequences more than anyone in this room. Jesus, the word by whom all things were made, Jesus was made flesh, and he dwelt among us in complete bodily form, and he took on flesh, and he experienced life just like you. Hebrews chapter four says, since then we have not just a high priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us then hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who is distant and detached, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who is ignorant of what it's like to go through life. But we have one who in every respect not just in most, but in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, not with fear and trembling, let us then with confidence get close to him. Let us then draw near to the throne of not judgment, but let us draw near to the throne of grace. There's a throne. And it's grace, not judgment. It's like he divvies out grace. Like, all right, there you go. You get grace. All right, next, you get, you know, you plead your case. I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. All right, done. Sentence to grace. On and on and on. There's a throne of grace, people. Jesus endured the throne of judgment so you can enjoy the throne of grace. Draw with confidence then to the throne of grace. Why? So that you may receive not judgment or finger pointing or a list or a try harder or maybe next time, but that you might receive mercy and find something else, find grace. And notice, find mercy and grace just when you need it most. Do you see that in Hebrews 4? So that you may find mercy and grace to help. In the time of need, this is why Jesus has come to us. He came to us to experience life as us, for us, to the extent where He can look at you and say, Yeah, I get it. I get it. He's not detached. Sin isn't theoretical to Him, your struggle isn't theoretical for Jesus. He knows, He knows. He knows the struggle. He knows what it is you're shouldering. Friends, he shouldered it for you. He knows what it's like to live under the pressure and the weight of your life. Of your life. Not just life, of your life. He knows what it's like to be under that weight. You see, this hope is ours because the real Jesus came to us to save his people from their sin By taking all the sins of his people upon himself. And this is what what, uh, Tim, as he was leading us in our call to worship today, was talking about in that that propitiation word. That propitiation meaning wrath absorber, wrath sponge. Where Jesus wasn't just dying, Jesus was enduring something in his death. It wasn't just physical torture, there was something very spiritual going on with with your sin. Not sin theoretically or generally speaking but specifically your sin the punishment for your actions you're at fault the things that you don't do that you should do you're guilty the bad things you've done that you shouldn't have done you're guilty but you don't get punished You get grace because Jesus was punished for you, and he does this on the cross, willingly stepping into the grind to receive not what he deserved because he lived perfectly, but he was made our sin. He didn't sin. He was made our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. You get his righteousness, And he takes your sin, what theologians call the great exchange. This is grace. He saves you by stepping in your place as your representative in his life, canceling out your life of continued sin and disappointment. And then he stands as your substitute in his death dying for you as you. He experienced true death so that you could experience just its shadow. Death isn't eternal. Death isn't to be feared. Death is simply a ride to where you're supposed to be going. It's a vehicle to get you to paradise, to real life, to true life. This is the fakest life will ever be for the, for the Christians. This is it. This is so phony and cloudy and fake, and we're numb. We can't hardly taste anything or see anything or experience anything. Real life awaits us. And this is provided through what Christ has done for us. But he had to change us. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Where because of what he's done, we look to him by faith and we are changed by the Holy Spirit. We're, We're not just made better or shinier, you're made completely different, completely new, new life, new heart, complete transformation, a brand new beginning, not condemnation, but forgiveness. Not shame, but mercy. No stain of sin perfectly, perfectly redeemed. You believe this, you believe what Christ has done, you're a Christian. You continue believing this and you believe this more consistently and you get to experience renewed health and strength day by day, experiencing this grace, this renewal. But do you believe this? Not about your spouse, not about your grandma, not about your parents, not about your church, Not about your to-do list this week. Not about what you didn't do that you could have. That's pretty good. Not about all the good stuff. Just you and your belief. Do you believe Jesus? Not do you believe that he came to earth. Do you believe that Jesus came to earth for you? Do you believe, like, it's like I don't I don't know about anybody else, but I know that Jesus came to earth for me. And I know that I'm a Christian. I believe that what He did, He did for me. Every time He went a day without sin, He lived that day for me. And in His death, He died if for no one else, He died for me. Do you believe this? This is what Christians believe. This alone not your actions, not your works. Those can't save. They're utterly insufficient. By faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, my friends, you are forgiven and his life for your life, his death for your death, you now experience the grace of the Christian life. But do you believe this? I invite you to believe this. I invite you to cash in all your sin and receive the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God meaning being good enough to be in a relationship with God. I invite you to be considered perfect today. Perfect. Cash in your sin and see that all that's laid upon Christ and experience forgiveness, perfection, renewed relationship with God where there's not one moment of any day where he looks at you and goes, oh man, when he's gonna take a serious? No, no. the Christian life pursuit is much like a parent watching their their, their young one take their first steps. It's like, you got it, come on, come on, come on. You you can do this, come on, come on, I'm right here. That's the posture of God. Why? Because God looked at Jesus in your place and said, condemned, condemned, condemned. So that he can say, come on, you got it. Come on, come on. It's grace, it's not fair. You don't want what you deserve. Jesus took that for you. Believe him and you're a Christian. Everything's new. Now for us Christians in the room, we get a chance right now to remember this by taking, dipping, and tasting in the Lord's table. We get to remember the life that he lived for us, which is represented by this bread that we're going to taste And we're going to, before we taste it, we're going to dip it in the juice of the wine, which represents his death for us. So it's with heavy hearts, yet with redeemed, grace-filled hearts that we get to come to the table this morning and experience, by taste, the redemptive work of our Savior, our, our big brother, that died and did this for us so that we could have God as our Father, who's always there just pulling for us and with us. Before you come and take, I I encourage you to think. You hear me say it often. Christians are those who think. 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 Don't just come take. Think first. Think through what this means. Own this. Repent. Find in Christ what you thought could be found elsewhere. Repent. Confess with those around you. If you have friends or loved ones with you, confess things. Work through things. Look over notes. Think. Pray. Pray. And then when you're ready, I invite you to come and take to the Lord's table. There'll be servers here and here. There'll be a service station over in the back corner here. And our deacons of prayer will be over here in this corner to pray with you over anything. And if you you believe Jesus... And you believe that you became a Christian today. If right now you're like, man, I'm I'm believing. Like, I I believe. Like, I I want this to be my story. Man, I I don't want you to hesitate. Don't take communion today. Come Come talk to me, and we'll go take communion together your very first time today. And we'll celebrate what Christ has done in your heart as he continues to save sinners. Amen? Let me pray for God's special blessing to be over our time. God, thank you for your help this morning. Thank you for your presence with us, Lord. I ask that you add a very special and real blessing to this time of communion. And Lord, help us as we work through these uh, misconceptions of who your son is and what he came to accomplish. And Lord, let us us rest in his finished work for us and let us live from that identity of what he's earned for us, not grasping after, Lord, more, more identity and other things. And Lord, where we find ourselves drifting to find our identity and value and worth and other things, Lord, reveal that to us so that we can repent, we can find in you what we thought could be found in those other things. So Lord, I'm asking you to satisfy us in you. Lord, teach us what that means. Lord, let us experience satisfaction in you this morning. So Lord, yes, add add your special blessing to our time. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you that this is true of what you've done for us. Be with us now as we remember you and your work in Christ's name. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.